This is Desi Jedekin from the Hollywood Crime Scene Podcast begging you to ACAST your vote in the upcoming election on November 3rd. Not sure if you're registered? Check out vote.org for your voter status and details on how to make sure your voice is heard on election day. And if you're looking to brush up on the issues on your way to the polls, you should give the new abnormal a listen. It's a hilarious take on politics and available wherever you get your podcast. I think it's amazing that we've been talking for an hour and two minutes and we're only in the first segment. Well, fuck. I have to pee and then we're going to move much more quickly through the rest of this. (laughs) Famous last words. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Neil Barnholden. We are back in full force today to talk about the indie sleeper hit of fall 2016, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. That's right, witches. J.K. Rowling keeps pumping out the material and we just won't stop talking about it. A quick note, since this is a new beast, neither a book nor a filmic adaptation, but a rolling authored original film we're going to be splicing and dicing our book and movie segments into one great big episode now i don't know about you two but i have a lot of feelings about this movie and i need to talk about them in the sorting ceremony for shits and giggles we're going to double up on this one and talk about both our general impressions and our thoughts about casting so let's start with some impressions marcel you want to take us away I would love to. I gave this movie a 75% good and a 25% offensive. (laughs) So I would argue that the enjoyable parts were very enjoyable. But overall, the average is like meh. It felt so much to me like a first-time screenwriter was trying to tell a story. But that's amazing because that's literally what it was. <laughs> this is sort of how I, how I remember the movie. We are getting off of a ship. We are in America. America is different from England. Here is a crisis. Here is a love interest. Here is a sidekick. Now we have a movie. Here is a climax. Here is a cliffhanger. Yeah, I mean, it's like she read a book about how to write a screenplay before she wrote the screenplay, right? (laughs) Yeah. Also, the, like, newspapers spinning into focus at the beginning to, like, give us the backstory was, like... So you read you read a book about how to write screenplays, but that book was written in 1933. I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, what, two minutes of newspapers telling us what's happening? Yeah. It was a lot. The fact that that was, like, the big opener to this new huge budget movie is, like, mm-hmm. newsprint? Yeah. Okay. Workmanlike. Yeah. It's a workmanlike movie. Does that, does, that, does that match your impression of it, Neil? Yeah, totally. I, I would give this movie uh, 50%. So, Just wait, 50% what? 50% good and 50%... Not good. Okay. <laughs> what percent of yeah, I, I I would give it uh, maybe something 25 to 30% offensive. Okay. I that didn't say. add I'm up to 100, Neil. We need to, we need to get no, this no. together. Because 
Because, no, no, no. I, I think this makes sense because 75% good and 25% offensive doesn't make it a 75% good movie, right? Because Whoa. the offensiveness is so strong oh. that it depletes the goodness and brings it down to a 50-50. So 50-50 good, 50-50 bad, 50 good, 50 I bad. See, I see. We, we, we're just describing different different oh, things okay. with our different I'm algorithms. need a conversion chart for this later on. <laughs> it's very confusing. I would give this movie a C minus. <gasps> That's what I would it's, say. If it That's... was handed in to you by a student. <laughs> yeah, if it was handed in, I would say, where, where did you get your millions of dollars to make this project? Was that Colin Farrell? <laughs> And do you think it's good pedagogy for me to assign fanfic movies in the class? <laughs> I mean, yes. The answer it to is, all of, actually, the, all of those really questions is, is yes. Um, um, <laughs> go ahead. No, I, I, I just thought it was uh, right down the middle. I thought I think it averages out as being pretty mediocre. I mean, it's it's satisfying, but also there's a lot I, that I did not think was good. It sort of felt to me like a very simple story, but told very convolutedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, it's a whole series of scenes, some of which are good scenes, mm-hmm. but sort of strung out along the line, uh, making the audience mere nifflers, helplessly scuffling along a necklace of some kind, <laughs> searching for the next scene. Aww. Yeah, like the enjoyable parts of the movie were very enjoyable, right? Like I lolled. Oh, yeah. Every time that Niffler came on screen, I was like, standing ovation. Totally. Niffler's movie gold. Yeah. Yeah. I was very, like, tickled by things. Like the Niffler was. (laughs) Yeah. Like some parts of the movie really did it for me. But on the whole, it was a weak sauce film. So, like, I think I get why people love this movie because the enjoyable parts are so good, but it's not a good movie. One standout scene for me is when uh, uh, Newt and Jacob are sort of going around Newt's little suitcase house and they're looking at uh, all the different animals. And I just thought that scene is so great. Mm-hmm. But what's weird is I remember in the movie theater watching that scene thinking, this story is just over. It's just it's just over now. We're just taking a, a ten minute break from the story, yeah. and it's a great scene. But I think it for me that kind of summarizes the strengths and the weaknesses mm-hmm. of the movie. It is a really good scene, mm-hmm. but the movie grinds to a halt. Mm-hmm. So I saw this movie twice, and what I want to say first, I wasn't swept away either time, and I was quite prepared to be enchanted by it. I'm easily delighted by movies. Like, I'm much mm-hmm, more critical same. of books. Movies just, I'm just like, ah, wee, mm-hmm. an adventure. I, I love M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Whenever <laughs> he gives me a twist ending, I'm like, I genuinely didn't see that coming. <laughs> like, I'm a very naive film watcher. And so, mm-hmm. in some ways, sort of the ideal audience for this. And I wasn't, I wasn't delighted there were some parts of it I really, really liked that I'd like to get into in a moment. But I also want to say that... So I saw it twice, and I saw it with, with different friends each time. And both of those friends loved it. Mm. The first one reminisced fondly after the fact about the first Harry Potter movie she saw. And, mm. you know, it sort of reimmersed her into the world in a really pleasant mm-hmm. way.
And then the second friend I saw it with, Renata, said that it was the best Harry Potter movie she's ever seen. What? Yeah, she thinks it's better than all of the originals. But the reason why she thinks it's the best is because it is a beautiful story of two polyamorous bisexual witches living in 1920s New York, entertaining the advances of non-toxic male, what's the word I'm looking for, like quarters. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what a great, what an original story to tell about the wizarding world. This story about these two obviously queer women who are living together pretending they're sisters. Oh. <laughs> Because I was like, but they're sisters. Oh, no, they're not. (laughs) They're not sisters. They're just saying they're sisters because they're lesbians. Of course, of course. I feel like that's a good example of how even a minute amount of fanfic can really redeem a story because that is a great movie. It's a great yeah. movie. And when she said that, I was like, holy fuck, that's a great movie. Mm-hmm. They're not sisters. They're clearly lovers. That scene mm-hmm. where they're standing in the doorway together and um, Tina is wearing the like blue pajamas mm-hmm. and Queenie's wearing the little pink negligee and they're so mm-hmm. obviously a couple but mm-hmm. like clearly also a polyamorous couple where it's totally cool to like bring a new admirer home and your partner cooks dinner for him and that's totally great and fine and everybody's comfortable with it because what's the point of imagining a wizarding world if that wizarding world doesn't get to be queer and polyamorous I totally agree so Renata's version of the movie absolutely in love with it And the other thing, the thing that I came out of the first time I watched the movie with and was like, there is one aspect of this movie that I love, and that is that it is like vegan propaganda beginning to end. Oh, tell me more about that. This is a movie about, not about animal rights, not about like treating animals well, but about animal ethics, which is Mm -hmm. to say that it is a movie about the idea that animals have their own ways of being in the world Mm -hmm. and that our relationship to them ideally is not one of sort of violently imposing our understandings on them, but of compassionately understanding the way that they are and respecting Mm -hmm. that. And that's what, like, Newt's attitude towards his creatures, which I really love. I love the way that they talk about them as as creatures. Because, you know, creatures has this, like, this etymology that sort of created things, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we're all creatures. Yeah, because he refers to humans as creatures, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. right? So it's this sort of leveling of the playing field. Like, for him, we are all creatures, and we all have different ways of being, and they're all equally legitimate. And it's just this sort of radically nonviolent ethics that's at the heart of his identity as a hero that becomes at the heart of the ethics of the film that then Mm -hmm. structure the kind of relationship he has with other characters and it's based in animal ethics Mm -hmm. 
I really, I really, really loved that. You don't get to see those kinds of stories very often. No. That's really nice. Yeah. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get into the shit that is wrong with this movie. <laughs> there is, some, I've forgotten it all. <laughs> there is some shit that is wrong with this movie, but I think that there's a great deal to be found in it. That because we don't care about authorial intention, I don't give a fuck if Rolly never meant mm-hmm. it to be there. I think that there's a lot of stories to tell about this movie that are actually really lovely. And that's not just the bourbon talking. <laughs> It's never just the bourbon, Hannah. Should we get into the shit then? Let's get into the shit. So at this point, uh, we're going to introduce a content warning. We're going to talk about Johnny Depp. We're not going to talk about whether or not he's an abuser because we at Witch Police believe survivors. And because his former partner says that he abused her, we believe that he abused her. Um, But we are going to talk about his casting as Grindelwald. And that will, in part lead us into talking about how we as a society deal with abusers. So if you, the listener, are at a place where these kinds of conversations are not a thing that you want to listen to, that is totally fine. So you can skip forward six minutes. We'll let you know when you're good to start listening again. And we promise that as soon as this conversation is done, we are not going to talk about Johnny Depp anymore in this episode. Skip forward now. Should I start? I wrote a paragraph. (laughs) I'm just going to read the paragraph into the microphone. So when it comes to Johnny Depp's casting in this film, I am of two equal minds. On the one hand, I think it is completely appropriate for anybody who wants to boycott this movie franchise to do so. I'm not convinced that this will make the studio fire Johnny Depp because I don't believe that they hired him ignorant of the allegations of his abuse. But... It is absolutely appropriate to boycott a movie that you don't want to watch because it is supportive of people who deny that they are abusers. And if that's where you're at, that is fine. I don't think that you would be missing anything revolutionary. And I believe deep in my heart that in a matter of time, probably when the movie comes out on DVD or is available as a download, the youths will ensure that there is a fan cut available on YouTube that is completely and totally Johnny Depp free and never shows his face. And you can look forward to that. Two, And I'm only just starting to learn about what carceral feminism means. And so a lot of my feelings about these ideas are very baby thoughts. So I don't have anything super fleshed out. But what I want to say is that I don't think that unemployment is the way to deal with abusers. And I think that if we want to build a society that believes survivors unconditionally, we need to radically change everything about the way that we respond to allegations of abuse. The threats of social ostracization and poverty won't stop people from being abusive, and they may actually make it harder for survivors of abuse to name their abusers for a number of reasons, but not least is is the fact that a lot of people love their abusers, and loving your abuser and being abused are not mutually exclusive. So what I would like to see is a world in which we say, as a society, okay, Johnny Depp, we know that you are an abuser. 
you're in this movie, we are seeing you in this movie, and we know that you're an abuser. I want to leave behind a world where we say, we heard the allegations against you. We hope that they are not true. You are innocent until proven guilty, because that is not how violence in our society works. And I think that acknowledging an abuser's violence as such is an extremely important way of demystifying abuse in general. And only once we learn how to demystify abuse and how it functions in our society will we be able to make changes and stop it. The end. The only thing that I would add to that, which is actually just amplifying the things that you've already put really well, is that I think that for a lot of people who have experienced abuse, the recognition of cultural reactions to abusers is a deterrent, not only if they love their abusers, but also because they know that they will be vilified all the further because Mm. of the sort of state-sanctioned and legal processes that govern how we talk about abuse right Mm -hmm. now, which is to say that if you come forward with allegations of abuse, the expectation is either you press criminal charges that are designed to destroy your abuser's life, Mm -hmm. and that's the only way that people will believe you, right? or you don't press charges, in which case nobody believes you. Yeah. And putting people in that position is profoundly untenable Mm -hmm. um and it leads us constantly into these these divisive impossible conversations where you know some people say this man is an abuser and then other people say you know well if that's true why aren't you pressing Mm -hmm. charges Mm -hmm. and then those people press charges and then people say why are you destroying this man's life yeah how dare you yeah and it's like well (laughs) Because that's literally the only fucking option that I have. Mm-hmm. Because that's the way that the state forces us to deal with abuse. Because because it wants to continue to imagine a version of society in which abuse is outside of the norm rather mm-hmm. than something that is at the core of how our society functions. Mm-hmm. So I agree that if for you as an individual, not watching this movie because you don't want to have anything to do with anything that Johnny Depp is in because this is triggering for you because it's upsetting for you because it's angering for you more power to you Mm -hmm. like that's that is a form of self-care and you are so so in your rights to do that at the same time yeah I really agree that if we believe women that means that we need to come to terms with the tremendously high number of men in our lives Mm -hmm. we might actually like and care for who are also abusers Mm -hmm. like we have to come to terms with that yeah. And that's going to mean looking at them and naming them mm-hmm. and not trying to shove them outside of society. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's hard because we don't have we don't have language or systems for doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because we depend so much on binaries. Right. And so like an yeah. abuser is a bad person. They do not belong in my friend group. I therefore yeah. cannot be friends with people who are abusers. Therefore, none of my friends are abusers, which is not. We all know the binaries aren't real, right? <laughs> yeah, we do. Okay. okay. We do.
do 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 do. That's the sound effect indicating that we're done. Now we're never going to talk about Johnny Depp again in this episode. Yeah. Maybe we could talk about non-threatening masculinity embodied in Eddie Redmayne. Yes. I I am (laughs) such a big fan of every single acting choice Eddie Redmayne has made around this character. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many of the things that make Newt Scamander. Scamander? I have a real hard time saying his name. Um, That make him. Scamander. Scamander? Is it Scamander? Scamander. You're an interesting man, Mr. Scamander. Oh, yeah, it is Scamander. Thank you. That, God, that Colin Farrell's been pretending spot. to be Marcel Cosman this whole time. <laughs> oh, no. I've had a sore throat for months. I really, I'm really making as much work out of it as I can. Scamander. New Scamander. Uh, I love every choice he makes. There's just a lot of um, ways that his, like, gentleness as a person manifests Mm -hmm. and also ways that are subtly indicating that he's a person who's used to being around animals too like he doesn't make a lot of eye contact Mm -hmm. he doesn't like he often stumbles over what he wants to say he talks very little for a protagonist Mm -hmm. there's huge swaths of the movie where he says nothing yeah big fan Mm -hmm. big fan of eddie redmayne in Mm -hmm. this yeah he's great i think it's uh also really interesting to see an actor underplay a role mm-hmm. because he's not oh he's i mean there's acting and then overacting but yeah underacting i think i mean there are people in this movie who are overacting <gasps> the hell out of their roles but what? you know he's no I, I think it's really interesting to see a central Andrew? role that's really underplayed uh mm-hmm. yeah no I, I totally agree with you it's a great character mm-hmm. just yeah. great yeah. just great it's also real fun to have somebody who's allowed to have his own real accent yeah. because everyone else is doing a voice. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's doing like a voice and like having <laughs> Tina and Queenie being like, we're from the 1920s. <laughs> it's like, mm, that's strange. And then obviously Colin Farrell's Irish. So like, yeah, but he's like a New York, like black Irishman. So it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's yeah, okay so if like... it slips out. Because <laughs> both his parents are like, yeah, 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 it makes perfect sense. They went Gaelic speaking. It's... Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's part Whew. of probably part of his, his ability to underact as well is that he's not doing a voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I believe that I've made my feelings about Eddie Redmayne's character in this movie uh, patently clear already, so we can move on. Let's talk about the Jews. The Jews. Here is what I love about Tina Goldstein. Okay. Um, I love that the first time we see her, she is eating a hot dog. (laughs) Um, Because it made me think of our friend Claire. (laughs) I just really, I just, she's like a lanky brunette. Who eats mm-hmm. hot dogs all the time. Because yeah. yeah. that is clearly established as like a thing she does frequently mm-hmm. that Queenie doesn't like. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> and so it made me think of Claire and it made me like her. I also am profoundly into her like oversized pantsuit mm-hmm. aesthetic. So ends the list of things I liked about <laughs> Tina. <laughs> yep. Same. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just bored with the woman who has to be a vaguely shrill, 
uh, orderly presence so that a man can go on a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, though it just occurred to me that Eddie Redmayne's a bit of a manic pixie dream wizard. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe but, it's uh, Tina who went on the journey? Is that what you're thinking? She doesn't really go on a journey, though. Yeah. She just, like, had a job, and then she lost it, and then she got it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like the dynamic with her character was that she is sort of minding the other characters, mm-hmm. like almost like a sort of caregiver role, mm-hmm. except that she also gets no respect or value whatsoever from her job, which mm-hmm. she's doing this whole time. Yeah. This is kind of like a combination of two really tired, really annoying uh, tropes about female characters, I would say. I'm prepared to see Tina grow as a character and become more exciting and more dynamic across the series. Like, mm-hmm. I'll hold out for her. Um, yeah. I didn't dislike her. I just found yeah. her a bit dull. And w- and she's deeply inconsistent with her funny 1920s accent. And when she does it, it's very silly. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't like what the story sort of had her doing in this movie. But I'm, yeah, I don't dislike her as a character yeah. or, or whatever. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. So I agree. Mm-hmm. Seeing her in another story could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty waspy Jew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not convinced by the Jewishness of any of the Jews in this movie. No. Except for one, which we'll talk about later. (laughs) Queenie is the only one in this movie who's doing a voice the whole time Mm -hmm. that I liked. I love her voice. Yeah. I love her very, she's like doing a real Marilyn Monroe thing. Mm -hmm. I was into it. Mm -hmm. I was into her aesthetic. I was into the like really sort of high power femme thing that was going on. This is a woman who likes pink and cooking Mm -hmm. and is like so defined by her empathy and care for others that she literally reads other people's minds. Mm -hmm. And it didn't feel for me as like it was reducing her as a character. It still felt to me like she got to be really badass in a number of scenes Mm -hmm. and sassy and, I liked her a lot. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there is a point where she talks about how undervalued she is at her job. And so she's also, like, entirely aware of how she operates in her society. And it's not in a self-pitying way. It's in a matter-of-fact, like, this is what I'm doing right now. It probably won't be forever kind of way, which I really respected. It's obvious that her position is not like it's not that she couldn't do better it's just that that's like not particularly her priority mm-hmm. because the second she wants something she knows exactly how to get it mm-hmm. yeah again to see somebody who is clearly fully capable of managing and manipulating the people around her but for the large part doesn't because mm-hmm. she's not an asshole mm-hmm. <laughs> i just liked her great I liked her hair oh yeah super great into that hair, hair. Um, I was going to say that one thing I really liked about her is that she feels like the most period-based character in the movie, mm-hmm. like that she's a flapper mm-hmm. with, and I mean, I don't know how much this was intentional, but she reminds me the most of characters from the media of the time, mm-hmm. I think, in this movie. And it's an interesting twist to take that kind of character into the wizarding world. And uh, yeah, I, I think it came across... Um, Pretty interestingly, actually. Yeah. It made me wish in some ways that other parts of the movie had been more engaged with the time and place in which it takes place. But yeah. I feel like I would point to that as an example of a character who shows how 
kind of rich and interesting that can be to take the history of feminism Mm -hmm. and put it into the history of wizards Mm -hmm. and come up with a really interesting character who is sort of unique to 1920s America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, you know, she's a new woman. Like they're both new women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah. you know, like what, what, what did being a new woman look like in the wizarding world, which is like pretty fascinating from the perspective of them, but then also kind of confusing because when you actually get into like Macusa, it's this fantasy of total egalitarianism, yeah. mm. which is like, that doesn't like that doesn't actually make sense with the stories of these two women mm-hmm. who are clearly experiencing systemic sexism mm-hmm. in their workplaces, and yet you want to imagine that workplace as like radically more free than the Muggle equivalent. Mm-hmm. I refuse to call them no magus. Oh, fuck that God. nonsense! That's ridiculous. <laughs> I won't use that silly word. I'll only say Muggle. <laughs> <laughs> I hate I hate how nomadge sounds like such a modern word, and yet it is ostensibly the the word that uh, non magic users in North America have always been called by. I mean, this is a very minor complaint, but it, it sounds like anachronistic to me. I don't. I, I mean, I'm in no way an expert on this, but I just feel like the hyphenated and abbreviated word really does not seem like something that was sort of has been around for a long time. Whereas muggle at least has this odd sort of charming antiquated sound to it. I mean, Nomadge sounds like something from the sixties or something. Mm. I don't know. Like it would like the U S census invented the category of Nomadge Mm -hmm. or something. (laughs) Well, Macusa is clearly ahead of everybody else. I guess so. I don't think it's a silly complaint because another thing that I find very baffling about the term Nomadge is that for a wizarding community, the concept of people who do not have magic is is very old. And mm-hmm. so it doesn't make sense to me that a word as important as muggle wouldn't make its way over here. Like, North Americans don't have a different word for snow. Sorry, let me rephrase. English-speaking North Americans don't have a different word for snow mm-hmm. than yeah. the British do. That's a right? really good yeah. point. Like, we have different words for things yeah. that aren't super important. Like and we have can- different words for things that were invented post-colonization yeah. of hmm. North America. Arcades, right. Yeah. Yeah, and like boots versus trunks yeah. and trucks versus lorries. Like yeah. we call technology different things, but like muggles have been around since before settlers came to North America. Uh-huh. Why would they have changed the word to something real dumb? Yeah. I take linguistic issue with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> though, okay, so here's a, 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 a moment of aside. Which is the really weird way that the movie is trying to align us, the viewers, with British wizarding culture. Mm. So that we, like Newt, Mm. are also like, no matches. What? (laughs) They're obviously called muggles. And the movie told us that we should already know that. By showing us the like anti-muggle switch on Newt's mm-hmm. suitcase exactly. before we ever find out what they call mm-hmm. muggles in in America, and that is funny to me because, like, I don't think it's broadly significant. It's just funny to me because definitely more Americans are going to watch this movie than British people, hmm. um, and so it's that funny like taking this huge American audience and being like, you you are an insider with this British guy and an outsider to american culture 
when you're actually not. That's interesting. It's a strange positioning. We have one more Jew that we have to talk about before we move on. We have to talk about Jacob. What makes you read him as Jewish? Being in New York. (laughs) And the fact that Queenie is interested in him. And as a good Jew, she would only be interested in a in another Jew that's fantastic it was the 20s that's what so so I have a note to talk about um ethnicity versus race maybe in uh, Forbidden Forest but it is really interesting to me that whether he is Jewish or not being Polish in New York in the 1920s meant that he was a racialized person Mm -hmm. um because uh, people like Polish was not white in the 1920s in New York yeah that's dealt both dealt with and not dealt with in the movie in some in some interesting ways that I think are worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine if he's not a Jew, yeah. but I just read all Jewy people as yeah. Jewish. So legit. Speaking yeah. of white people who didn't count as white in the 1920s, let's talk about our favorite <laughs> Irish character. <laughs> oh, whiteness is funny. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So, so what do we think about Colin Farrell? Uh, I thought that he was great. I thought that his character was um, deeply underserved by the reveal that he is in fact Grindelwald. <gasps> I think that the movie would have been infinitely more interesting if he had been aligned with Grindelwald. I thought you were going to say a lion. Uh, also if he had been a lion been a lion if that lion we saw on the street earlier had actually been graves the whole time Mm -hmm. yeah that would be a great reveal he's just an animagus yeah just wanders around as a lion um i'm disappointed that we won't see more of him and that character later on because um It felt like such a cheap cop-out for it to have been, it was Grindelwald the whole time, when it would make a lot of sense for this person who works at the American Ministry for Magic, Mikusa, to be interested in this kind of, like, might over muggles or whatever the catchphrase is. Yeah, right right up until it's revealed that he is Grindelwald, I really thought that he was, Grindelwald was just going to appear at the Mm -hmm. end as a character who he was in sympathy with. But yeah. I, I'm i sort of... I feel like the movie is laying the groundwork for another kind of troubling thing where it's just that one evil wizard yes. and he shows up exactly. and makes speeches and a guy who seems to be up to something shady, it's because he's the most evil wizard in history mm-hmm. wearing a mask. Yeah, And, and not that, that there are people who appear to be reasonable who but also believe this terrible thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't possibly imagine that a like competent professional member of Makusa could also just be sympathetic to the arguments mm-hmm. of essentially the Hitler of wizards. He, it has yeah. to just be him. It's based on that whole model of history that's like, if we could go back and kill Hitler, World War II would never have happened. It's like, that's not how right. politics works, you guys. And the idea that, like, 
fascism only came to America because one particularly evil head fascist brought it there as opposed to like the concept of fascism being really enticing to a lot of people who didn't feel that they had the power that they deserved yeah. in their society and, like it's it's a it's a popular movement it's not a guy who pretends to be different people <laughs> in order to falsely seem more popular and, than he really and is. And they right? laid the groundwork to make that kind of wizarding fascism appealing in America via the New Salemists who mm-hmm. yeah. are there like as a way of pushing forward and making it believable that Grindelwald would be a sympathetic figure for Americans. Mm. That, that, mm-hmm. that threat that the New Salemists represent would mean that people like Graves might actually turn to and become sympathetic to what Grindelwald was saying, which is, again, I think a more both a more accurate way of thinking about the sort of gradual rise of fascism as a global movement through the first half of the 20th century. And also, I just, I think, a more important political message. Also, mm-hmm. it's like, like, we learn a lot more about how these movements take hold when we see why individuals might find them sympathetic rather mm-hmm. than being like, no, no, it's just this one guy. So we can just dismiss right. him. Um, Which, oh my God, was not back. me apologize. That was not me saying fascism makes sense. <laughs> uh, I thought that was the whole point of this podcast was that fascism is the bestism. Fascism is the bestism. Yeah, I mean, are, the are, new name of our podcast. Are we all fascists? That's, that's why I'm on this podcast. Yeah, yeah we love fascism. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also wanted to say, just to harken back to what we were uh, saying earlier, too, that I think another element of Grindelwald's appearance that fits into this is just the idea that Grindelwald has a really strange, eccentric appearance. Mm. And unlike Graves, who sort of has a very straightforward kind of appearance. And yeah, I, I think that's part of that same idea that it's actually a, a bizarre wizard who has sort of really elaborate one-man plans to take over the world. Can we talk mm-hmm. about the fact that there was a second horror movie happening inside this movie? <laughs> Every once in a while, a different set of cameramen would take over to give us spooky close-up <laughs> shots of a haunted blonde girl chanting weird mm-hmm. shit about witches. And then the mm-hmm. movie would be like, anyway, moving on. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Where are we? <laughs> Why is there literally a haunted house just in the middle of downtown New York? It was so weird. But also very effective. Those were some of the stronger parts of the movie, I thought. These parts of the movie that were from another movie. (laughs) These, like, horror movie moments that were very affective, but also effective in, like, convincing you that these that the new Salemists, Salemnists, Salemists. I wrote down Salemists, but it might be Salemnists. Why would it be Salemnists, though? Know. I'm you obviously wrong. It. It's probably Salemist. Anyway, these, like, witch haters, yeah. those scenes really worked for me to um, provide an impetus for, like, why the magical community is under threat, right? Yeah. Like, if that's the kind of violence that they enact on people who are ostensibly not magical, yeah. but then secretly turn out to be magical, that, like, that's that's horrifying. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. In my second viewing, I found myself getting a little frustrated with the device of um, 
a red herring that is created only through camera work that is intentionally misleading us. So, oh, with the, the red girl? herring is supposed to be, we're supposed to think right. that the girl is the um, obscurus. Obscurial. Uh, obscurial. Obscurial? Obscurial is the person, and obscurus the is thing. the magical thing. Thank you. Thing. I totally didn't follow that nomenclature. So, the girl's supposed to be the obscurial, and, you know, it's the big surprise that it's actually Credence. <gasps> but that's like, I think that's lazy writing. Like, you didn't actually narratively convince us that it was that girl. You just consistently zoomed in the camera on her looking spooky as fuck. And then at the end, it's like, oh, psych, you thought it was her. And I was like, well, because you told me it was. That's how that's how cameras work, yeah. right, Neil? Yeah. I'm, there's a scene where they... I think it's the scene where the obscurial is explained mm-hmm. and they're saying, oh, you know, uh, so, uh, someone with magical abilities who's been raised to believe that they don't have magical abilities. And then it's just a cut oh. to that girl. And, and should be about 10 years old. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think that's the scene yeah. where it gets to that cut to that girl. Yeah. yeah it's I know. I know what you mean, Hannah. It's it, it seems unfair, yeah. <laughs> actually, like you, you're not playing by the rules. Yeah. Much like having a character who is secretly another character, but who doesn't act anything like that other character until the last minute. Yep. And then it's like, psych, you didn't know. It just keep, I keep thinking I? of that, of that like text or that tweet at some point, that text when Rowling texted mm-hmm. me. I know exactly what you're thinking. Where Rowling was like, what people don't know is that uh, Jacob Goldstein's grandmother is actually Tina Goldstein. And I was like, mm-hmm. how? We have, How we, could you we know that this isn't know? a real world. Like, we can't know <laughs> things. None of us could do that archival research <laughs> that you, in your head. Like, that's not a fun historical fact that is m- largely forgotten. It's made up. You made mm-hmm. it up. Mm-hmm. And this felt kind of yeah. similar. Like, what yeah. people didn't realize is that Graves was actually Grindelwald in disguise. And it's like, well, but... <laughs> <laughs> We had no way of knowing. You can't no go good. back and look and see the obvious clues. Like on rewatching, yeah. it's not like, oh, you hinted it in so many subtle ways. It's just like. I think the thing that's really annoying that we were touching on about talking about graves and also about Credence is that there's actually no reason it couldn't be the other characters. Yeah. Like there's no reason plot wise why it couldn't have happened that way. It just coincidentally happens that Graves chose the wrong person in that group. Yeah to be his informant and it just it just so happens that graves uh actually isn't a a grindelwald sympathizer he is grindelwald like it would have made absolutely as much sense everyone's actions would have made as much sense the other way around yeah yeah because we don't know graves from previous encounters so we can't tell if his behavior has been different (laughs) (laughs) Chris and i go way back and he's acting and nobody else in the movie seems to have any sense that he's acting a little bit unusual i mean we don't even know if he exists like we don't know if if grindelwald killed graves and replaced him or if graves was never a real person and grindelwald just showed up and was like hi i'm graves like i can't wait for the tweet that explains this yeah what what viewers might not know is that <laughs> is this piece of information that's only in my head. There's a recipe for this potion that can make you a completely different person. 
Yeah, I feel like if you compare it to um, Bertie Crouch Jr.'s impersonation of Mad-Eye Moody in that movie and how that was handled, that makes so much sense. And there's the thing with the um, the tongue thing that he does that's actually a clue <laughs> as a to what's clue. happening. It's explained how the character impersonated this other character, and it even shows you what happened to the real character. Yeah. Like, it, it actually it makes it seem like such... I don't know, virtuosic storytelling <laughs> compared to this, where it's like, yeah, he was that other guy, but he didn't have to yeah. be. He could have been someone could else. Have been anyone. <laughs> Who's ready for an all new segment? We need to pay a visit to Flourish and Blots to talk about print culture, but we also need to drop into Madame Malkin's Props for All Occasions to discuss prop sets and special effects. So why don't we take a trip down Diagon Alley and really pick apart this new view of the wizarding world? So tell me about your thoughts on not only opening this movie with a bunch of newspapers, but opening this movie with a bunch of newspapers that talk about Hogwarts and European wizarding culture. I felt like that was a very, very unsubtle way of easing us into the milieu of this story, which I think this movie did way too many times in way too many ways. (laughs) Like, as Mm -hmm. you were saying earlier, Hannah, having a character who's tied to Hogwarts, talk about Hogwarts bring up Dumbledore again he's from England he's from the wizarding milieu that's more familiar to us I thought that that was a way of frankly for me all I needed was the Warner Brothers logo and that music that was it Mm. that's I'm I'm back I remember what this is like I don't know if they imagine that a more casual audience needs to be reminded that it's called Hogwarts I don't know. Like, I can't imagine a life of mine where I could ever forget what the name of Hogwarts is, but I can imagine that most people might, actually. So, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? It was it was interesting to me that they did it through print, through representations of print. Um, I feel like it was trying to visually remind us that this movie is continuous mm-hmm. with the books. Like, I feel like it was trying to sort of not only link this movie back to the previous movies and back to like that storyline, but also to root it back Mm -hmm. in print culture. I feel like it ties back into what Rochelle was saying in the last minisode about Harry Potter and branding and that sort of focusing it back to Mm -hmm. books, um, which is also significant considering that, you know, this movie did come out of a book, though it's not an adaptation in the same kind of way. It is like technically an adaptation Mm -hmm. of a book and then was turned back into a mm-hmm. book immediately. So it's this really weird, like, it's a, it's a movie that was written as a movie. It's an all-new story written for the screen. And yet there's a constant attempt, both within the film itself and paratextually, to, like, tie it mm-hmm. back to print culture. Um, and that feels like, again, like that sort of Harry Potter brand, which is yeah. about books. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about whether this makes a better book than a movie. Um because we know that Rowling's strength is writing books. If the, if the script mm-hmm. would read better than the yeah. movie watches. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Know. We'll have to find out. Only one way to find out. Buy another book. Oh, then you'll have to do more episodes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh. That's a really interesting point too, Hannah, because one thing that I was wondering about this movie is um, 
before I saw it was whether it was going to position itself as a prequel to the books or to the film or if it would bother making that distinction. And I sort of felt it didn't really bother making that distinction, but it does seem like, as you're suggesting, there is that sort of constant gesturing to print culture in a way that the movie doesn't gesture to uh, cinematic culture really at all, Mm -hmm. though it could, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't look anything like a movie from the period. It doesn't really do any sort of gestures towards it. I think there's an iris in at one point, but, and that's a very silent movie thing to do, Uh but I don't, yeah, I, that, that was an interesting choice. So I agree. It seems like all of the sort of intertextual gestures are to print Mm -hmm. and to print in general. I wonder if we can tie that into a sort of larger thing that the movie seems to be doing, which is sort of linking modernity to muggles or nomadges and linking Mm. Sort of traditional, again, we've talked about this in the books in the previous movies, linking sort of artisanal methods of production to wizarding society so that, like, the movie doesn't want to be overtly cinematic because cinematic technology Mm -hmm. is a muggle thing. The movie wants to be print based, much like our one and only muggle character hates working in a factory, hates canned food, and wants to make old country pastries mm-hmm. by hand and that that feature of him his sort of attachment to traditional culture and artisanal labor is what makes him an acceptable mm-hmm. muggle to the wizards yeah i i had a thought i just want to backtrack to what neil was saying about how the movie doesn't really make any effort to link itself to either the books or the movies and mm-hmm. i wanted to comment on newt's scarf which is very clearly hand-knitted Um, and is a Hufflepuff Mm -hmm. scarf, which I think we see in his suitcase. There's that moment when it gets opened, and that's our first link back to Hogwarts is Mm -hmm. his scarf. And it's the kind of thing that Mm -hmm. only you would only know if you had read the books and if you were particularly familiar with what Hufflepuff color schemes are. But it's it's a dark gray and a yellow, which it's from the 20s and not from the 90s. So the, like, production methods are apparently different for house elves or whoever it is that knit scarves. But he knit that scarf he himself. He probably did. But I guess what I wanted to say is how I how effective I think that is in doing exactly that thing of tying itself neither to the movies nor the books. Like it's recognizable as a Hufflepuff mm-hmm. scarf, but it's not the same Hufflepuff scarf that we would have recognized from the movies. Mm-hmm. It's it predates those things. Mm-hmm. I just thought that it was a really effective prop. So here's a question about mass mm-hmm. reproduction. Are we supposed to associate Queenie's magical making of dinner with like artisanal handmade things, even though for all intents and purposes, it's the opposite of handmade and is in fact automated production of something that muggles have to do by hand. That's interesting. I'm thinking of it in relation to Jacob and Queenie's infatuation with one another. So in addition to Queenie being very beautiful, Jacob Mm -hmm. is enchanted by the fact that Queenie is able to make this like ostensibly handmade meal, but in a way that's sort of automated. So like her, her uh, automata-ness does not Mm -hmm. take away her humanity Mm -hmm. in the same Mm -hmm. way that like factory produced food Mm -hmm is seen to like take away the humanity of the person who makes it and the person who eats it. 
Yeah, it's like the Wizarding World can have modernity without the soullessness that seems to that seems to accompany mm-hmm. it in the in the non-magical yeah. world. Yeah, or or even that like Muggle modernity is soulless, but it's an attempt to recreate the kind of automation that magic allows. Um, but mm. because the muggle world is not a magical place, you can't have that kind of automation without losing the soul. This is making me think about, um, it's making me think about Benjamin, obviously. Yeah, me too. But I think that there's, I've just realized that I feel very differently about the use of magic in these movies to make an infinitely reproducible task. And the use of magic Mm -hmm. to do something singular. So when Queenie Mm. cooks, she's cooking, but I feel like it's almost not exactly automation, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. It's more like tool using or something. Yeah, it's not quite, because she's like, yeah, yeah, she's deliberately making this one dish, and she's making it for somebody. Mm -hmm. And you see this one strudel kind of dance through the air and do this odd mm-hmm. I mean it's great actually I thought it was a good scene oh, and then you oh, watch strudel God, so I, badly and it's a great scene I mean that was one of the scenes I really liked but it seems to me quite different than when in Makuza you see you know just row on row of typewriters typing mm-hmm. with no one behind them that feels yeah I just realized of course those are typewriters so yeah there's an obvious thing going on there but I, I do feel like there's maybe a distinction between magic that makes mm-hmm. a task reproducible mm-hmm. and magic that is just used mm-hmm. to do something. I, I agree with you. The thing that I want to suggest, though, is that non-magical automation is only the illusion of reproducibility, but all analog things that are reproduced, the copies are never 100%. Right. They always have distinctions. Mm-hmm. So, like, so I'm not saying that what you're saying about Queenie isn't true. I think I'm just saying that like our conception of what automation is, is an illusion. Yeah, but I think Benjamin's idea of the aura, which is the sort of specialness that is attached to something that was artisanally or handcrafted by an individual as opposed to something mm-hmm. that was machine made, that still attaches to things that were made mm-hmm. through magic, much like things that were made by hand. Um, but it's it's also interesting that like that... You know, that that attachment to the aura and to the artisanal and to something like that sort of suspicion of modernity that we see in a variety of ways, particularly the bank Mm. scene where Mm. the bank is like, I have to protect the interests Mm. of the bank, Mm. which was like, I am a metaphor. (laughs) Um, I hate imagination and also magic. Not that that's real. Also poles. Yeah, I mean, like, what really happened when Jacob Kowalski went to the bank to get a loan is that that man was like, your last name is Kowalski. Get out immediately. Who let you through the front door? But uh, it's not a straightforward nostalgia for the past because nostalgia for the past is represented by the kind of, like, violent attempt to erase difference that the Mm -hmm. New Salemists Mm -hmm. represent. So it's a sort of, like suspicion of mechanization and how it dehumanizes people without a sort of nostalgia for a Mm -hmm. time when things Mm -hmm. were simpler what was everybody's favorite beast well i'd have to think for it oh it's the niffler (laughs) i uh i really like the niffler i something about that beast just uh gets me 
right in the appreciation feels. I just, I like that beast. It's so cute. And seeing the movie, I was very pleased because I think they used the Niffler for some pretty good kind of physical comedy. The Niffler's body language is really funny. It reminded me of old timey cartoons, Mm -hmm. you know, like where there's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like Goofy trying to stop a chipmunk or something. (laughs) And just Mm -hmm. this mischievous, uh, animal with a completely inexplicable fixation on wealth that that bit where newt catches the niffler and is shaking out all of the jewels and there's like an unfathomable I, quantity of jewels yeah yeah there was some serious lolling that happened i loved it i loved it <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Leisha. And this is Kate. From the podcast Pants. We're begging you to A cast your vote in the upcoming election on November 3rd. And please check your registration status at vote.org and plan to get to the polls on election day. If you're looking for a podcast to get yourself up to speed, please check out the NPR Politics Podcast. It's a personal favorite. Get out there and A cast your vote. Pants. Pants. Marcel, do you have a favorite beast? Uh, I definitely felt a, a surprising amount of affection for the bow truckle. Like when the horrible goblin bartender required Newt to give him his bow truckle. And you knew as the viewer that like there's no way that Newt could get out of that and had to hand over the bow truckle. But you were just like, no, this is... How could this be? I had that was the only time in the movie where I had this feeling of, how could this be? Mm-hmm. I there were a lot of children in the screening that I went to the opening night screening, and I feel like no one was expecting so much uh, upset around the bow truckle. Mm-hmm. That's so upsetting that scene. Mm-hmm. Hannah, I'm trying to find the name of the one that I really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite beast was the invisible grandma oh yeah what, <laughs> what is, is that, that thing, thing called? called oh yeah the it was like it's like a it's kind of like a like an ape almost yeah. very furry yeah. it's got all that white fur yeah. and it's a it just babysits yeah, yeah. and it's invisible but it also really likes purses and yeah. it stole <laughs> it stole candy from a kid because that's funny Whatever the thing is called. Whatever the thing is called, I loved it. I would also like to say that I felt a lot of emotional attachment to the Obscurus as well. Yeah. Both, like, the mystery around it, but also Newt's desire to protect it. His, like, his insistence that this is a creature, even though it doesn't look like what we imagine creatures should look like because it's sort of like a mist. I was really taken with that, with that creature. How did everybody feel about the horny rhino? It definitely made me feel like, okay, this is a kid's movie, and kid's movies, I guess, don't need to worry about consent, so we can, like, make jokes about a horny rhino chasing after a man who does not wish to engage in sexual intercourse with it, because that's funny. Eh? It was, like, unclear to me what that rhino was planning on doing. It's such a, like old dumb movie joke yeah. is like man gets assaulted by animal mm-hmm. but the scene where newt does a mating dance to lure it into the suitcase 
I laughed a lot during that scene. Yeah. I, like, if Eddie Redmayne doesn't get nominated for an Academy Award for that dance alone, like, what is the point of the Academy is what I would like to know. Yeah. It was a really great scene. Yeah. I, once again, it reminded me of old-timey cartoons. I mean, it seemed like that trope where you think the joke here seems predicated on your awareness of sex, mm-hmm. but it's also deeply, deeply troubling if you have even the most basic kind of knowledge of what's happening. But it did, mm-hmm. it did remind me of like, I, yeah, I, I can't think of a specific example, but the kind of joke that you would see in old Looney Tunes or something. Yeah, like in The Sword in the Stone, when the squirrel is in love with Wart as a squirrel and goes chasing after him because she loves him and he has to, you know, try to get away. Yeah. Uh, Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. Le yeah. Pew. I also, I've said this before, but man, I do not, I find love potions so creepy, like real creepy mm-hmm. and disturbing and not even really in universe so disturbing, but I mean why people write stories in which they happen. That yeah. really unsettles me. Yeah. Stop being fascinated with the possibility to take people's consent away. Yeah. It's yeah. not it's not a fun idea. Yeah. Just stop yeah. it. Let's end our conversation about the beasts with this question, mm-hmm. which is how do you think this movie is going to age? Oh, because of the CGI? Because these are pure CGI beasts. There is not an animatronic to be seen. Nothing is real. Eddie Redmayne is constantly having to touch things that aren't quite there. And there's a couple of scenes where you can really tell that that thing is not there. And if you're me, are just picturing him petting imaginary things against a green screen for a while. Sorry, did either of you see... I think I tweeted this, but it's a picture from the set of The Jungle Book, the 2016 jungle book and it's what the panther actually looks like and it is a man holding a giant puppet of a a cross-eyed googly-eyed panther and the man has a very serious expression on his face and he's just holding this puppet up over his head and it's amazing because you think that's what neil sethi was acting beside the mo- it has the most ludicrous expression on its face, like a panther that just walked in on something that was the last thing it was ever expecting to see. <laughs> like a panther a split second before getting a pie to the face. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, I hope they use that panther puppet for the Thunderbird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when you see him petting it, he's actually just petting a terrifying Muppet of some variety. I have a feeling that it won't age well, but that's based entirely on how I felt about movies that I saw a decade ago versus how I feel about them when I rewatch them now. It's just a yeah. feeling. I mean, it was so, like, for the most part, the special effects were really good. Yeah. But I can't help watching a special effect heavy movie now and being like, oh, you just dated the fuck out of this movie. Mm -hmm. This is going to be absurd in five years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that'll be exciting to look forward to, especially because there are four more movies to be made. And like, will they all come out in the next five years or will they come out in the next decade? Because at the end of that decade, it's going to be like, whoa. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
more familiarity. So why don't we leave the bustle of the city streets behind us and go for a stroll in the Forbidden Forest, where we talk about race and class and power and bodies and oppression and almost certainly something that rhymes with stew glotch. So I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about this because uh, it wasn't something that I noticed watching the movie, but it was only on reading up about the movie after the fact. Uh, But the fact that, like, just how ludicrous it is to have set this movie in the 1920s New York during the Harlem Renaissance and there to be, like, three black characters in the entire movie, that's, it's, it's unfair fathomably shitty yeah I, I had heard somebody comment on this before I actually went to the movie so I was paying attention to it and I was like why are the streets of New York white mm-hmm. you know urban culture has become more diverse over the past hundred years but like New York in the 1920s was not a white city mm-hmm. yeah. I mean I, I guess the only thing that it could possibly indicate is that when you have to recreate a previous period in history that's the kind of choice that you have to make whether you realize it or not what you imagine Mm -hmm. the past to be like and I suppose that if you imagine 1920s New York bonkers inaccurately (laughs) to be uh, (laughs) almost entirely white uh, I guess mm-hmm. that's the kind. This is the kind of movie you would produce. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. real disturbing. That's real bad news. So the the weird thing is that in addition to writing blackness out for the most part, certainly as a sort of like thriving part of New York urban culture, there is this weird production of twenty first century whiteness that mm-hmm. is entirely anachronistic. So, like, a thing, you know, a thing that maybe some of you have heard, have heard people talk about before is that, is that whiteness is a sliding category. (gasps) So, like, who counts as white and who doesn't count as white has changed historically. And, uh, so one of the fundamental characteristics of whiteness, particularly in an American context, is that it is defined through Mm anti-blackness. So, a lot of minority groups, ethnicized immigrant communities um, sort of deliberately fought for their whiteness by positioning themselves against blackness. Mm -hmm. And that has, you know, that has even been the case with um, Asian American communities, Mm -hmm. right? Sort of trading in anti-blackness as a way of gaining proximity to whiteness. Mm -hmm. But the experience of Jewish and Polish immigrants in America in the 1920s was one of certainly not the kinds of intense racialized hatred that black people experienced, but was also not one of fitting seamlessly into whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so the ease with which Jacob Kowalski goes into the bank and sits down and asks for a loan is just entirely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the ease of movement for two young women with the last name Goldstein mm-hmm. is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It sort of imagines whiteness as a natural category mm-hmm. that is like legible based on skin pigmentation mm-hmm. rather than being a sort of agonized over cultural construction that sh- has shifted historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think portraying the category of whiteness as trans historical is also part of whiteness's claims though, 
right? I mean, that's by saying that it, it, by portraying it as a stable category or by saying that you can just look at someone and tell if they're white or not is, Mm -hmm. I mean, people in the 1920s would tell you that they could tell if someone was Irish by looking at them, which is Mm -hmm. madness. It's really unsettling to see a portrayal of the past do that for that reason, I think, because it does contribute to that in the future. Or, sorry, in the present, yeah. in, in yes. 2016, right? In by the saying, future, the future, now. Yeah, right. People who are white have always been white, and that's always been a totally stable category, and there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. And if we dehistoricize it like that and sort of give in to the fantasy of whiteness as a sort of universalized and stable category, then we give in to whiteness as natural, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. which it's not, right? It's, right? it's created deliberately and always through violence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So speaking of transhistorical constructions of race, uh-huh. let's talk about what Neil has referred to as the stereotype squad. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't remember what the secret council of wizards is called, but I think of them as the stereotype squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you guys spot the Canadian wizard? No. I'll give you three guesses what that wizard dress. Yeah, absolutely. No. It's to- I totally saw that. Stop. I swear, I am... If I turn out to be wrong about this, I will have had the most bizarre hallucination during this movie, but I'm absolutely certain that there's a Mountie wizard. So I I have complicated feelings about the stereotype squad, but really it's just me being overly generous (laughs) uh, to the (laughs) filmmakers. So I, I understand that they wanted to establish really quickly and briefly that these are wizards from all over the world and that they are, for lack of a better word, diverse. Mm hmm. But the way they chose to do that <laughs> is through really clear-cut visual stereotypes and uh-huh. particularly costuming stereotypes. And I really think there's a better balance to be yeah. struck between with representation and not just falling into visual stereotypes. Like, yeah. that scene could have been visually more subtle in a way yeah. instead of so, so painfully obvious. It's... It's a profound reminder of the presumed white Western gaze that films yeah. like this are, are working with. So they're not thinking, like, how can I indicate to a Chinese viewer that this character is the leader of your magical community? It's saying, yeah. how do I indicate to a white Western viewer that this person is Chinese? And yeah. that, like, that seems to me to be sort of the crux of the difference, is that you're not thinking, like, mm. how do I actually represent diversity? You're thinking, how do I signal diversity to white people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, that's very insightful. Yeah. And we are just knocking these out of the park. Just like, nope, 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 nope. Thunderbirds? Okay. I guess we got to talk about Thunderbirds. So before this movie came out in the episode that Marcel and I did, I said that my best hope for this movie was that it wouldn't be identified as a Thunderbird, that there just wouldn't be, that there would be an effacing of this issue. And I do want to say, I think that's pathetic. Like, I don't think that that's a good situation in any way. And that's not even what happened, because that that thing is clearly identified as being a Thunderbird. It's placed in this menagerie of totally fake, ridiculous, fantastical creatures. It's not there, incidentally. It turns out to be so important. I mean, it turns out to be like the whole reason he has come to America is because he is saving this Thunderbird and bringing it (sighs) back home. He is repatriating this indigenous creature. I mean, which is incredibly ironic 
considering his gesture in attempt to like do right by this bird is at total odds with Rowling's attempt to represent indigeneity in any way that is respectful or just. Mm -hmm. So like anything in Newt's attempts to recognize the value of an indigenous creature Mm -hmm. is fundamentally undermined by J.K. Rowling's garbage approach to representing indigeneity in the film as a whole. There were so many opportunities to do this right and to be respectful and she didn't take any of them and when you watch the movie and you see this like beautiful CGI bird who Newt has a very tender and loving relationship with like I see I see how so many people would want to watch this and be like, but Fred is awesome. We love Fred. He's great. He's very buckbeak. Like, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, but like, that's not the problem. Yeah. The problem runs so much deeper than that. And the problem makes it extremely violent to watch the movie and be like, no, but the Thunderbird's awesome. I love Thunderbirds. Yeah. Thunderbirds are the best. Yeah. My house's creature is a Thunderbird. I'm a Thunderbird. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. Like placing that Thunderbird in that list of Fantastic Beasts is just so horrendous. Yeah. I just like this would be so different if it was, you know, oh, the Niffler. It's from Arizona. Taking this Niffler back yeah. to Arizona. I mean, there would still be there would still be yeah. issues about erasing indigeneity, but mm-hmm. it yeah. wouldn't have this it wouldn't have this appropriation yeah. to Oh God. Yeah, I mean just imagine if in his like room full of I'm trying to come up with an equivalent like if in his room full of fantastic beasts there was the archangel Gabriel <laughs> who he would just like pet a bunch and be like look I such a cute angel I named him Fred I named the archangel Gabriel Fred I'm here to release him right yeah. like yeah. it's so obviously horrific when yeah. you like yeah. you just that's just not how you treat anybody's culture when you don't think that those people are beneath you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really into the mental image of him having the, the Archangel Gabriel and naming him Fred, though. I think maybe when we do our fan cut of this movie, we should just do that instead. Just, like, have, like, a shitty cam cut away from yeah. the movie, and it's just, like, a person wearing a like bunch of badly put-together feather, like, feather pillows that have been broken open, and he's just, like, shedding feathers everywhere. And it's like, I'm, I'm Fred. <laughs> I'm Fred. <laughs> I live in Arizona. Okay. Do you watch? Do we need to? I think that we need to address the simultaneous presence of actual Jewish characters and goblins. I know. I know. You're right. Uh, in no way undermines our fundamental argument that the representation of the goblins is anti-Semitic. Yeah. I would even go so far as to say that the, like, Aryanness of the Jews who appear in the movie, in contrast to the hyper-Semitic goblin who appears in the movie, like, reinforces the stereotypes of the goblins as being Semites. Whereas, like... 
good white Jews look just like everybody else. Well said. It reminds me, I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody was talking about uh, homophobia and the kinds of homophobia that manifest as like, I don't hate gay Mm -hmm. people. I just wish they didn't have to act so faggy all the time. Yeah. 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 If only they would act like us. Yeah. Like I have no problem with difference when it manifests in absolutely no way. Exactly. So like clearly this wizarding world is not anti-Semitic. Look, there's (laughs) Jews. They look exactly like us and are in Mm -hmm. no way legible as Jewish, Mm -hmm. but trust me, they're Jewish. Oh, those, those monsters that look Jewish. No, no, Don't, (laughs) don't mind them. The only reason you think they look Jewish is because you're an anti-Semite. Yeah, you're the one who made this about race. Yeah, I mean, I'm very open-minded about uh, what people's last names are and nothing else. (laughs) No other aspect of anyone's identity whatsoever. Cool. Great. Good Jew watch, everyone. Good Jew watch. High fives all around. Woo! So speaking of people who are legible as different or not, I think it is worth talking about Newt and sort of connecting this back to the conversation that we had with Lydia Brown at Tufts Mm -hmm. about the pleasure for people who are in the autistic and disabled communities of um, finding characters in popular culture in which they can recognize aspects of themselves who are not reduced to a series of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And some of our listeners have said that they have been finding that in Newt. Yeah, I, um, so we can't necessarily speak to that at any length other than just to remark that our listeners have pointed this out, which is, which is great. But what we can do is contrast that ability of recognizing oneself in Newt with the recent Pottermore piece that came out that I haven't read um, I feel like I don't need to because I feel like everybody who is smart has explained it very well already. But Hannah, yeah. you read it. I did read it. Yeah. yeah, I read it. And what it is, is rolling sort of weighing in on um, disability and illness in the wizarding world. Oh, and she makes, <laughs> I know, right? At last, oh, at long okay. last, what yeah. we've all been waiting for. And Silently. what she says is that wizards are not susceptible to mundane or non-magical illness or disability that they are only susceptible to magical injury and magical diseases and so um what that does in brief is presumes a version of health that is the sort of normative or ideal body Mm -hmm. that magic can achieve And then within the wizarding world really clearly specifies that only traumatic encounters with magic lead to the sort of aberration of the normative body, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is born whole and then things happen to you that cause you to become sick or to become disabled. Her examples are are Lupin and um, Moody. Mm -hmm. And the violence of that of like insofar as you are a person living with a disability or a person living with a chronic illness you are an aberration from normalcy Mm -hmm. that violence becomes obvious when we think about what kinds of difference or divergence are allowed to sort of carry over into the wizarding world and which Mm -hmm. ones aren't so like harry's glasses Mm -hmm. like 
So you can have magical stigmatism. That's mm-hmm. fine. So that, that kind of any attempt to draw those lines around like, oh, this this is fine, but that mm-hmm. doesn't get to be in this magical world yeah. is an act of violence. You know, and the, the point that I was making on Twitter was um, yet again, we get this reminder of like when rolling as a reader revisits her own texts and offers interpretations of them which is what she's doing with these Pottermore pieces Mm -hmm. she's a much shittier reader than many of her fans are Mm -hmm. and so to differentiate that from people who are looking at characters like Neville or like Newt and finding in them empowering and exciting representations of neurodivergence that's Mm -hmm. just it's just a more interesting reading because mm-hmm. it's a reading that like makes space for difference. It's a reading that allows different forms of heroism. It's a reading that just like destabilizes all kinds of like violent and hegemonic aspects of our society. Um, and I like it more. Yeah. Yeah. But they, we always say there aren't right and wrong readings. There are just better or worse readings. Mm-hmm. And I, def- I define the better ones as the ones that provide more space for more people to like, imagine themselves as actually allowing to be in the world yeah yeah i i have never said that there are no wrong readings i stand by the fact that there are absolutely incorrect readings 100 percent of the time <laughs> but i take you know your what? point that's fair there are some wrong readings <laughs> i take your point <laughs> anyway the niffler is yeah. a metaphor for capitalism what? i mean the niffler is for sure a metaphor for capitalism but it doesn't make it any less cute <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I think like one of the things that I find really frustrating and upsetting about Rowling's tendency to do this is that what she is doing when she takes away readers' abilities to see themselves and their atypical or non-normative abilities and capacities in the characters that she has created unintentionally Mm -hmm. is she turns various kinds of disabilities into metaphors. And that is something that I just find so enraging and infuriating because disabilities exist and they're not metaphors. Mm-hmm. They, are, they just are. Yep. Um, so I want to sort of transition into talking about how uh, abuse is treated, the, the abuse of the children um, in the movie. I, I, all I want to say about it is that I appreciated that it wasn't a metaphor for something else. And I think, like, this might be one of those things where, like, this is an example of something that Rowling is good at. Abuse doesn't need to be a metaphor for violence. It just is violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if she just applied that same understanding of the world to other types of difference, Mm -hmm. we would have a much richer and more exciting magical universe. For example, the ones that fans make. Yeah, like, why can there only be magical disability, but there can be mundane abuse? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I agree with you that, that that the abuse that is happening, I mean, the, the I can't remember the name of the woman who's abusing Credence, but mm. she's, she doesn't actually know that he is an obscurial. Right. Like, she's abusing him because she is an abusive person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And his abuse is not magical. It's it is mm-hmm. it is abuse and tina's attack of that woman is not about defending the magical community it's about right. trying to stop somebody who's abusing a child like yeah. abusing a variety of children and so like that to have that at the heart of it just like this real thing 
Um, and that was quite powerful. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm also glad that the abuse was ultimately not a metaphor because a recurring problem that I have with the evolving uh, Rowling's Wizarding World is the kind of is the mix of metaphors and the thing that they're a metaphor for and when they run into each other. Mm. So we've known, uh, I think, since... Is it Half-Blood Prince? No, it's Deathly Hallows. We've known since then that the deal with Grindelwald is that he is a wizard supremacist, right? right? He believes that people who can use magic are superior to muggles. And now we see his rise to power, and it is analogous, and I would say really directly analogized to fascist movements in history. Mm -hmm. But he's also presented in this movie as being in opposition to American wizards, because he's not Colin Farrell, right? right? Colin Farrell isn't a sympathizer of his. Wait, what? Wait. <laughs> well, I, so it's not that, you know, Grindelwald has sympathizers. It's yeah. that Grindelwald shows up. Um, because American, the American wizarding community, as we find out immediately by Newt telling us this, have partitioned themselves off from uh, nomadges more severely mm-hmm. than in Europe. Mm-hmm. And there's that comment that Grindelwald makes about whether the laws are for, you know, quote unquote, our protection mm-hmm. or their protection. So at this point, it feels like, okay, this met, this is pretty easy to metaphorize or to allegorize mm-hmm. or to understand as references to real history. But this expanding universe has made it clear that the reason American wizarding society is like that is because of the scourers who are nomadges who want to destroy all wizards. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel like this allegory, which is fairly consistent up to that point, Mm -hmm. becomes really troubling. Because if you think of that as being a direct allegory for the rise of fascism, (laughs) the problem is that the scourers are real, that there really are muggle supremacists in this world yeah yeah which is like the equivalent would be like telling a story about world the rise of fascism before world war ii and having a bunch of evil jewish characters yeah who are actually killing off aryans it would be like somewhere in the backstory explaining that there really was an evil cabal of jews Maybe not now, maybe not forever, but they were around. (laughs) And it's funny because sometimes from some angles, I feel like that's a good portrayal of the complexities of real world Mm -hmm. politics. So, you know, it's interesting that the American wizarding community is different than the one in the UK. Mm -hmm. They're not a one-to-one kind of uh, metaphor for something directly, but sometimes I feel like that just trends into really, really dangerous waters where for all that a movie like this could illuminate something, even just something emotional about fascism and its danger, it also suggests things that are just false and really harmful to think about fascism, like that there's even a grain of justification for it. Because in this world, Grindelwald actually does have something of a point. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that he's right, but the people, he he is correct that there are muggle supremacists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's even more obviously the case in the original series when we don't get a single muggle who isn't a monster. Mm -hmm. At least now we have Jacob, who's got a muggle now, to be like, oh, they don't all deserve to die. Look at this one. We -hmm. like him. Yeah. Um, But I think, I mean, your point, Neil, which really sort of has clarified something I've been struggling with in 
you know, Rowling's work in general is the the blurring of the lines between metaphor and allegory. Yeah. So like there are some aspects of her wizarding world that are so obviously and patently allegories for real things. And so and when she comes out and says like uh werewolfism was an allegory for HIV. Mm-hmm. We were like, yeah, we knew. And that's like it's functioning allegorically, so it's like taking this magical thing and just placing it in such a position that it stands in directly for and replaces the existence of this other thing that is real. Right. And teaches a lesson. And teaches a lesson. Right. Yeah. But then there's other aspects of the wizarding world that don't function allegorically because the wizarding world isn't fully separate from yeah. reality. And so reality mm-hmm. is still also there. And the messiness of that in this world, like it gets really mm-hmm. confusing sometimes mm-hmm. to be like, okay, so yeah, like people did kill witches. Mm-hmm. Like that was a real thing mm-hmm. um, yeah. throughout history. Like a really, a really horrific and violent part of human history was the systemic murder primarily of women primarily of women who possessed forms of traditional knowledge that were passed down through matrilineal forms of community the sort of hunting down persecution and murdering of those women is something that is being picked up on in this wizarding world as a like magic is real and witches and wizards have a real reason to fear muggles because muggles will turn against them with violence mm-hmm. and it's like okay yeah i will follow you that far but then to be like and so then within the wizarding community there are people who want to rise up and take over that still makes sense to me but mm-hmm. to then deliberately link those people to fascists mm-hmm. yeah. takes the whole metaphor and just like ties it in a knot yeah <laughs> it's like i you know what i lost the thread yeah, I, I lost just, the thread of how this was working. Yeah, I, I I don't actually know what these things are supposed to be anymore. Yeah, like I, individual things like, such as Grindelwald make sense, mm-hmm. but their context is just bewildering and baffling and and kind of offensive. Actually, yeah. if you try to follow that through. Mm-hmm. Yep, I I think the last thing we should talk about in this section is. Uh, grave slash grindelwald's relationship with credence yeah and the degree to which we are supposed to read that as metaphorically using like the imagery Mm -hmm. of homosexuality to stand in for something else Mm -hmm. or if we're supposed to read it literally as a as a gay relationship because Mm -hmm. all of these aspects of the sort of older man luring this younger man um, meeting up with him after dark in alleys, the overt physical intimacy of their relationship, the mm-hmm. promises that he's offering him of like a new life, and then the physical punishment that Credence is receiving mm-hmm. that is meant to sort of cure him of this aberration, mm-hmm. this wrongness about him, like is all so clearly coded mm-hmm. in terms of homosexuality. Yeah. But Grindelwald is a canonically gay character. Mm -hmm. So it's a metaphor where homosexuality is standing in for magic. Mm -hmm. But it's also not a metaphor because Grindelwald is gay. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I find that confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And it like 
it reinforces the stereotype that older gay men can only have pedophilic relationships with younger men. Mm-hmm. Because what we see Graves doing, Graves, what we see Grindelwald as Graves doing in the film, at first seems to be like politically aligning and recruiting, but then eventually you start to realize that it's actually grooming, that he's mm-hmm. grooming Credence. And then when he gets the information that he thinks he needs from Credence, he attempts to discard him. And like... I'm going to call... I'm, give me a moment here. I'm going to call Grindelwald a mean person. <laughs> mean Just people... Meany weenies, I believe. Meany weenies. Are still capable of affection. And it is not impossible for Grindelwald to both be a fascist asshole and to also be attempting to, like, protect and save this young man like Mm. i don't what i think i find really frustrating and shitty about this representation is that it has to be all the bad things yeah Yeah. grindelwald is a fascist he's also a pedophile he's also a negative stereotype of homosexuality and he's also and he's also got a dumb mustache and he's got a bad mustache all the bad things I mean, again, I don't. I keep. I feel like I keep sliding into this. Like, make the fascists more sympathetic. <laughs> but like, it's a but one like, demand. At it which, is please. one it demand. Is just the like absurd parody of evil yeah. that mm-hmm. that characters can represent. It's so much more interesting always to have villains like Cornelius Fudge. Mm-hmm. is a more interesting bad guy. Dolores Umbridge. Dolores Umbridge yeah. is a more interesting bad guy mm-hmm. than, ultimately, than a Voldemort or a Grindelwald. Mm-hmm. Because they remind us that evil's not always readily legible mm-hmm. um, or easily dismissible in that way. Mm-hmm. And then they remind us, as a result, they remind us that, like, we actually have to be thinking critically in order to fight against these forces in our society because mm-hmm. the bad guys don't always have murder mustaches or no noses. So, or, or indeed show up, declare that they're evil, twirl those mustaches, and then vow that no prison will ever hold them. <laughs> <laughs> and with a wink, jumps off a cliff. Oh, fuck. What was that? What did Grindelwald say? What is his weird final line? Do you really think you can hold me? No, he has another line after that that he says to oh. Newt. And See it's you some- later. <laughs> it's something like, no, it's really weird. Like, do you think we will die a little? What? Uh-huh. Yeah. And he says it. he kind of mumbles it as he's walking out the door. It's, uh, will we die just a little? He asks him as he walks by him. That's his last line. So he's also a modernist poet. Great. (laughs) It's Ezra fucking Uh, Pound. It is Ezra Pound. Secret vorticist. (laughs) Well. Awesome. It's Ezra Pound. The whole thing is just a metaphor for modernist poetry. Great. I know she won't be born for another 60 years, but that won't stop us. We're still going to talk about feminism in Granger Danger. Okay, so 
An article showed up, and I believe that the title is "If the F in Fantastic Beast doesn't stand for feminism," <sighs> I I can't even remember. And I would I just I feel the need to say no <laughs> because I really it's extremely important especially in this day and age when we are getting all kinds of movies that are starring strong women and have strong characters who are women, we really need to resist the conflation of strong female character and feminism Mm -hmm. because these are two different things. They're not mutually exclusive, but they are not mutually inclusive. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's very important to remember, like Dolores Umbridge is a very strong female character. She's not a feminist. Mm -hmm. So let's just remember that. Okay. (laughs) So there are numerous excellent women characters in this movie, but that does not make them, and it does not make the movie itself, feminist. Mm -hmm. That's what I have to say about that. So what do you think, what about this movie registers to you as less feminist than it could be? I think that what that article is doing is making claims that are implicitly white feminist. So like... The fact of having women who have jobs is mm-hmm. being presumed to be feminist. Yeah. Like, nobody is agitating for for women's rights in the movie. Yeah. So there's that. And they're taking for granted the black woman who is the head of Macusa. Um, they're taking her presence as the head of Macusa as being evidence of feminism. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is actually, like, a really disgusting erasure of the histories of feminism and particularly like the histories of black women's feminism, Mm. because to just sort of put her in that role as though she didn't have to fight tooth and nail to get there and to like, to suggest that she is not aware of herself as a black woman in a very racist space and time Mm -hmm. is, is very unfeminist to me, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And further to sort of elide the history of feminism from the muggle world entirely, like that's one piece, right? So like Mm -hmm. there's no, that's just the fact that the 1920s was a period of agitation around um, all kinds of political reform is just, is gone. It was literally called the progressive era. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. It's fine. It's Um, fine. But you know, you're, you're allowed to use fantasy to imagine a world that is structurally different. Mm-hmm. absolutely and fantasy does that in all kinds of exciting ways and that is really fun but to imagine a world in which in fact most things look exactly the same mm-hmm. so you know for all intents and purposes the hierarchies that structure our world the forms of order the the social organization is the same but they're just is a black woman leading it yeah. like that's not radical it's not mm-hmm. yeah it's not interrogating the status quo it's not interrogating how power works it's not mm-hmm. um interrogating the function of systems that make it incredibly hard for women of color to thrive mm-hmm. it's just erasing like you said erasing those mm-hmm. struggles yeah. um and that that's not empowering yeah or right, like, I mean, people might experience it as empowering, which is like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I love getting to see women in movies doing things. I love yeah. getting to see women of color in movies doing things. Mm-hmm. But again, like you said, like that doesn't make the movie itself feminist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it makes me think of the the Netflix series The Crown, mm-hmm. which if there's one thing that The Crown as a series does really well, it is disabuse you of the notion that 
Queen Elizabeth II is a feminist and that her reign on the throne was a was a marker of feminist progress. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. That like yeah. a lot of the time people who are uh structurally excluded from power in order to have positions of power are required to reproduce the systems that would have excluded exactly. them in the first place. Yes. So that is why I would say that the movie is not feminist. Yeah. I would like to, I know I've already implied this uh, via my delight with Renata's reading, but I would just like to note again um, how incredibly boring I find compulsory heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So on the one hand, I'm quite delighted with Jacob Kowalski as a character Mm -hmm. because I think that it is nice to have a muggle character. And Mm -hmm. I think that him being a lovely, kind, gentle, fat muggle Mm -hmm. undoes a lot of the violence that the Dursleys did Mm -hmm. as characters. Mm -hmm. Um, That he's fat and he's not a villain and that he's a muggle and he's not a villain is Mm -hmm. great. Um, And I really like that he and Queenie like each other. I think that's really sweet. Mm -hmm. But also the way in which the only social interactions are like various sets of men and women encountering and immediately falling in love with each other it's just like oh so that's all humans do huh Mm -hmm. they just like couple up and head out Mm -hmm. and you know i've been thinking a lot about representations of like different kinds of families and different kinds of kinships and different kinds of communities and Mm -hmm. once again like the magical world is a great opportunity to paint family as being different to like Mm -hmm. remind us that there's nothing natural or inherent about like about heterosexuality or about the couple unit or about familiar Mm -hmm. notions of reproduction and the communities in which we raise our children like none of that is natural but when you reproduce that in a magical world you imply that -hmm. it's natural that it's the default yeah I just I just find a lot of aspects of a movie that is that was nice and that was sweet and had some characters I really liked and had some women who were cool, more fun clothes and did neat things. Mm-hmm. But like, there's nothing radical here. Yeah. I didn't, I, I still, I keep going back to um, Mad Max Fury Road mm-hmm. as a movie that I finished watching and was like, yes, fuck, yes. Oh my God, let's just <laughs> fuck some shit up. Uh, burn, yeah. just gonna burn everything down mm-hmm. like and that like I was excited by that movie because it was doing something radical because it was like taking the status quo and being like now let's fuck it up yeah and that's exciting to get to see things happening differently mm-hmm. um so when I think about something that's like actually feminist I think about things that like let me see the world differently that let me imagine what the world might look like without just the stifling weight of patriarchy and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like that's this movie, this movie does not do that. No, Hot no, take. it does not. Hot take. <laughs> All right, dear listeners, we had originally intended to finish up with a segment taking your questions about fantastic beasts and where to find them using the hashtag fantastic asks however we're running a little bit long (laughs) so (laughs) so we're gonna save that for a minisode which means you can keep the questions coming again the hashtag fantastic 
asks to ask us any questions that you have about the movie and uh, we'll have time for even more. And we're excited to hear what you would like us to talk about, including the number one most asked question. Was Ariana Dumbledore an Obscurial? And, and we'll have a special treat for that mini-sode that we won't reveal yet. Oh, there's going to be a special treat in that mini-sode and you're going to love it. <laughs> Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 18 of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are, as per usual, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. Now, we've got a tiny piece of bad news. After much soul-searching, we have decided to discontinue our famed Twitter lists. (gasps) Put simply... Dear listeners, they are untenable. <laughs> God damn, it was such a bad idea. <laughs> that means that if you want a shout out on an episode, you need to either leave us a review on iTunes or in some other way, buy our love. For example, HB Banana Bee posted an amazing photo drinking out of one of our travel mugs. Looking, Looking good, HB Banana, Banana Bee. Bee. We're really good at uh, synchronicity. We really are. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support, and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? And fond parting waves to everyone who's been tweeting at or about us. We might not spend the next 10 minutes reading your names, but that doesn't mean that we love you any less. We'll be back with more mini-sodes and maxi-sodes and in-between-sodes. But until then... Later, witches. Uh, okay, so I will take the first stab at editing this down. Um, it's not going to be an hour, but I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> it's. I would be disappointed if it was because <laughs> we'd lose a lot of solid gold yeah. i mean it will immediately cut get cut down when i take out like all of the times that i opened packages and went to the bathroom <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> like there's some obvious stuff to cut out but, yeah uh... okay okay uh yeah should we we should hit our microphones at the same time to try to sync them up okay well when you do <laughs> Now I'm recording. (laughs) Are you ready? Yep. (laughs) On three or one, two, three, and do it. One, two, hit. Okay. One, two. That wasn't at the same time at all. (laughs) Is there a lag? Is there? There's not a lag, right? No, I don't think so. It doesn't seem like. We'll We'll try again. One, two, three, hit. Okay. Neil, can you count us down? That'll be easier. We need an objective third party to do this. Okay. One, two, three. I think that was the same time. That was excellent. Okay. I'm not convinced. It seemed like it was a second apart on my end, but that's fine. (laughs)
second, a full second. And we're back in full force today to talk about the indie sleeper hit of fall 2006, Fantastic nope. Beasts, nope. and where to find them. Nope, fall 2016. <laughs> <laughs> Just a decade off. <laughs> Look, I've been distracted by that meme. <clears throat> okay. Sorry. Let me try that again. I'm so excited about this. Thanks. Neil just made it bigger for me. <laughs> I appreciate that. <clears throat> 14. <laughs> 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> yeah. Hannah's impression of Marcellus. <laughs> 14, minutes. 14 minutes. This is how I talk. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Marcel. It's the accent. <laughs> so, we are now going to talk about... I'm definitely paying attention and not opening this box <laughs> with one hand. What? What? Why do you, it's okay to finish opening that nope. box, Hannah, because otherwise nope. the entire... I multitask. The entire this segment is, is going to be like... <laughs> The best audio. <laughs> Fantastic boxes and to when them. to open them. <laughs> when to open them. Might be a plate. We should end this episode with a series of bizarre, baffling unmaskings. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out Neil was Marcel and Marcel was Colin Farrell. The whole time. And Hannah was just a large tentacular cup of bourbon. <laughs> this whole time. So soothing and warm, though. Your prisons mm. will never hold me. <laughs> I, I think he's Polish. I think he's Polish Catholic. What makes you think that he's Catholic? Because Poles are Catholic. Excuse me. There are some Polish Jews on the other end of this recording who are offended by the idea that they would be Catholics. <laughs> yes, yes. There are definitely Jewish people in Poland. <laughs> I wasn't going to be the one to Please. make that joke. I would, we're going <laughs> to edit that out. Okay, look, Pottermore says everything you need to know about Jacob Kowalski, and I have to tell you that this is not everything I need to know. <laughs> I needed to know some other things. I need to know what his penis looks like. <laughs> I need to know one really specific thing about Jacob Kowalski. Okay, I just need to know one yeah. thing. One thing. Maybe if we tweet at Rolling, she'll answer. I need a photo of his... Could you... <laughs> dear Rolling... Could you send me a photo of Jacob Kowalski's dick? <laughs> Not the actor. <laughs> Just a tasteful drawing on Pottermore. That's a all tasteful drawing. Jesus. Oh my god. Let's okay. do this. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Uh, Who's ready? Not Hannah. <laughs> into the 1920s i'm and flappers and art nouveau and the great gatsby and champagne coming out of things i, I don't <laughs> butts champagne coming out of butts <laughs> neil we all know those gatsby parties were pretty wild pretty wild stop it my cat's getting f- overexcited about cords sorry it's just a rough day in the McGregor Purdy household. No, we don't chew cords. That's not the kind of cat we are. Hey, where'd, where'd Neil go? Where's Neil? Where? What? Neil? Where? Where's Neil? Neil? I, Neil? Did you lose? You you were supposed to be watching Neil. Oh shit! I lost Neil. I forgot him at the grocery store. <laughs>
having meals wherever my fucking wallet is. <gasps> <sighs> I'm going to stop recording now.